0: Welcome to the Security Weekly News Wrap-Up for the week of 19 July 2020. I know it looks like I've been sitting here since last night. Maybe I have. I'm not exactly sure. But I did move over, so I was sitting over there last night. Uh, Twitter is still hacked. Social engineering, Emotet returns. You know how much I love Emotet. Lots of data leaks. Your VPN provider is probably lying to you. And a bad power attack might set your phone on fire. And I also get a chance to recall Forever Hack. All this and more on Security Weekly News Wrap Up.
1: This is Security Weekly for security professionals by security professionals.
0: We interrupt our program to bring
1: you important It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM.
0: All right. It's always fun to do the news on the day after Security Weekly. So, (laughs) yeah. Um, let's talk about what happened this week on the shows. On Application Security Weekly number one one five, Mike, Matt, and John had an interview with Basker Nalapotula, uh, who's the director of engineering for Bayarca, and Chris Rajana, who is the president and CTO of Bayarca. The topic was a discussion about how security posture management and governance needs to be a part of your cloud engineering team. You would think we wouldn't have to talk about that, but you need to talk about that. It's it's really important. Good segment. On Business Security Weekly number 181, Paul and Matt talked with Justin Bradley, the chief growth officer at Intizer. Uh, I, I had to actually make a note on how to say the EntTure. I went I, 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 you can hear how they, how he said it. Matt screwed it up, but I, and I screwed it up too, so you know uh, anyway, the segment was about whitelisting and zero trust and how to build a robust application control strategy. So this is pretty interesting stuff too because a lot of people are talking about zero trust now. and so there's some important points there that you probably should take note of. Um, let's see, they didn't have a show. On Security Weekly News, number 51, uh, I made myself laugh uh, introducing Jason this week. Uh, so if, if you didn't see that, I, I, I was making up an introduction for Jason and trying to make him laugh and made myself laugh instead. Uh, Jason, But Jason Wood talked about n- uh, no log VPNs leaving logs they said they weren't logging open so that people stole the logs that they said did that weren't logged and saw the logs of the things that they said weren't being logged right um i will talk about the you no know, the vpn stuff a little bit later uh but stand up your own vpn for employees uh Thayer was talking about wireguard paul was talking about wireguard uh, last night, uh, I was with OpenVPN, which is one that I use. They're both reliable. They're both cheap. And you control the endpoint. So, you know, you, you could do that. Uh, on security and compliance, weekly number 36, uh, Jeff, John, Josh, and Scott had a, had, uh, a PCI Dream Team segment. Uh, and they, had, well, they, had, they did. They had one, too. Arthur Cooper, uh, the senior security consultant at Newark's, Ben Rothka, uh, the Senior Information Security Specialist at TAPOD, uh, David Mundink, Mundink uh, the Principal Security Consultant at Her- <laughs> Herjavec Group, it was, like, it was like the week of names and companies that are hard to say uh, when you were on Security Weekly last night, and Jeff Hall, the Senior Consultant at Wesby Associates, that was quite a dream team lineup of tongue twisters too. Uh, the second segment was just more of the same, and they had a long discussion about uh, PCI. So I'm sure Jeff was, like, as giddy as a schoolgirl uh, on that uh, segment. So you should check that out. You know how Jeff is. On Paul Security Weekly, number 659 I don't know if I'll live long enough to be on another Fibonacci number. I I think the next Fibonacci number uh, on Paul Security Weekly is 944. I think that would be the next uh, Fibonacci number. Uh, But 659, I was on. Yay, it was fun. Uh, The first segment was with our friend uh, uh, Zane Lackey from Signal Science, and we had a really good chat about COVID-19, and and Zane is, is a real expert in the field on a lot of things and a worldwide respected expert on all sorts of stuff. We were talking about COVID-19 and how the movement into the cloud, and and I might actually inject the word abrupt movement into the cloud, uh, and just externalizing all your applications, whether you moved them to the cloud or not, has accelerated due to work from home and some thoughts on how you might fix that. Uh, Zane's always a great guest, and and we, we had a lot to talk about there uh, and everybody's facing this sort of problem, so it's definitely a segment worth uh, taking a listen to or watching uh, if you want to see it, uh, see the actual video uh, excitement. Uh, in the second segment, uh, Sumed Thakar, uh, the president and chief product officer at Qualis, joined us for more discussion about patching and managing resources in the cloud. And Sumed's always a great guest as well. Uh, He's been on before, and we always like to talk to him. And uh, uh, the thing that I, he made, and there was a whole bunch of quotes that Sumed put out last night that you could probably have put on posters about uh, uh, about Sec. Uh, but he was talking about managing a thousand developers, <laughs> and I was like, a thousand developers? Yeah, I, I managed eight developers once, and I, it got ugly. Uh, but we even got to say Lambda a bunch of times in that segment. So uh, if you're interested in cloud stuff and issues around all that, it was a great segment and fun to talk with Sumet every time. Uh, and, of course, we had the news, uh, which went on for quite a while. We had fun, and we had bottles of scotch and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, how can you go wrong? My favorite thread of the week is going to be, uh, well, I did social engineering last week, and that's probably still my favorite threat, but we talked about that. So I'll talk about step two in the kill chain. Uh, what if we just forget social engineering? I mean, I mean, I know everybody went, "Whoa!" Did he just say that? But but if we just assume that an infinite series social engineering is going to work. And I actually have been pretty much in that camp since the 1980s. And if you watched last week, you heard me talking about that. Somebody always takes a bait. I mean, you can maybe not the first person or the second person, but the nth person is going to take the bait. So that means maybe the first step in an actual kill chain uh, is going to be something else. Because if that's the first step, we haven't done very well at stopping it and we've been trying to stop that kind of stuff for a long, long time. So how does the thing that happens in the social engineering actually move past the point of that new guy clicked the link? You know, and it moves from there to, mother, this is Ripley, scuttle the ship. Uh, I, I can't do her voice, but the real impact is what happens after the link is clicked and not the pretty much given that the link will get clicked, even though we direct so many resources towards that not getting the link clicked and it just doesn't work. But if you don't want to see that, I did talk about that last week on episode 50 so what is the fatal flaw that unleashes the pain well when i start thinking about that kill chain i really start thinking about the blast radius so when i talk to people about this i talk about blast radius a lot and what i mean is that if sid clicks a link how far does it go If it just stops right there on that one local machine, you know, I mean, that sucks for Sid, but, you know, everybody else is kind of like, eh, poor Sid, he's screwed. But, you know, run the backup and you're good, and the impact ends up being low. But if it's in a large network with privileges, then that blast that Sid unleashes may take out the whole company and all their backups and everything surrounding it. Large, homogeneous networks with little granular control are common, and they are big juicy targets for everything from you know exfiltration to ransomware and usually it's a combination of those things and so if we release the, if we release something in that big flat homogeneous network it's just like tossing a stick of dynamite into the dynamite warehouse and all too often, companies have little or they have no control at all at a granular level, and they don't manage user accounts very well, and all those users may have local administrator privilege, they may have PowerShell privileges, which I mean often they have PowerShell privileges, which allows the execution of things like mini-cats. And even if they don't have local administrator privilege, they may be able to allow lateral movement uh, to find something that will. And so, you know, basically your company gets hosed by ransomware. You've got to focus on that second step in the chill cane. And I could go on and on about this, but, you know, I mean, I've been going on and on about it for a long time and it hasn't done any good. So uh, maybe it's just, you know, but I'm not going to give up. And now the top news from all the shows. Oh, Let's keep doing the Twitter story. I mean, I, I you know, you, you kind of want the Twitter story to maybe go away. But it isn't going away, and there's still a lot of interest in this Twitter story. So if you've been under a rock, which you probably haven't, you might have missed it. Twitter got hacked last week. Everybody covered the story. It was on every major blog. It was on the news. It was on Security Weekly. We, we talked about it everywhere. But the story kind of keeps expanding and contracting. Uh, so basically, what happened was a social engineering, read phishing attack was able to compromise not just some basic users, but in, in some internal Twitter users. That apparently, those internal users were running with way too much privilege, uh, like we often see, and and we're to blame as many as many times. This I run as root, you run as root. Uh, we sit there and we run with local admin privilege because we're you know the the IT and security people. And so the attackers were basically advertising on a bulletin board that they could reset any email associated with a Twitter account, any Twitter account. Uh, I think they were charging like $300 for that. And that they could give you access, like full access to any verified account you want. And that the price they were quoting was like $2,000 to $3,000, depending on, I guess, how famous it was. You know, get them now while the getting's good, because once we sell them all out, there won't be any more. So anyway, a verified Twitter account, and I got a lot of calls about people asking me to explain this to them. A verified Twitter account just means that at some point in time, at some point, Twitter verified the the user, owner of that account, and said, yes, that is Elon Musk. I don't, you know, they have different mechanisms for verifying accounts, and there's all these criteria for how to get a verified account. And for a while, it was this really popular hip thing to try to get one. You had to have so many followers. You had to have so many tweets. You had all these different things. And then, you know, you had to provide identity. Facebook is doing this now. You can get a verified Facebook account. But all that means is that at some point in time, they verified the user. So Twitter approved it, put the little check mark on it, and all of a sudden, you're a big shot. Uh, The attack focused on big name verified accounts and appeared to develop into a a Bitcoin scam. So it's not clear exactly what the objective here was. Uh, Was it just getting people to give Bitcoin to this site? So accounts like Barack Obama and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and on and on and on basically tweeted asking people for donations to this Bitcoin account. And... You know, these are verified accounts. So theoretically, when people saw these requests, I guess, you know, because it came from a verified account, people, some people went and donated money to these, to the Bitcoin uh, wallet before it got shut down. And they, other accounts, uh, then, so there were, there was like 140, I think, total accounts. I, I had that in the story last week about how many there were. Um, but these verified accounts were tweeting about donating Bitcoin, uh, and then there were other accounts involved in this that were, were a combination of not so famous people, unverified accounts, and so forth. But they had their all their Twitter information dumped. So the Twitter tool that lets you dump all the personal information, like your telephone number, your two-factor authentication number, your email address, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, were dumped. And then in 36 of the accounts now, uh, Twitter has revealed that their private DM uh, DMs, so their direct messages, were actually reviewed and possibly downloaded. So I don't know what was in those private messaging stashes. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in reading uh, Elon Musk's private messages or Barack Obama's private messages. Uh, So basically, who knows what all has been exploited here. Uh, the total Bitcoin that was believably in the lo- in the low six figures, but now there is a million dollar bounty out on information leading to uh, the attackers. So Twitter, obviously, uh, you know, or so, I don't know if Twitter put that bounty out or somebody else put the bounty out, but you know, so hey, now they got dead or alive posters put up for the people that did this. And I was sort of wondering last night, was, were the attackers going to just sort of maybe turn each other in to try to get the bounty? I, I mean, they obviously get more money from the bounty than they got from uh, from the Bitcoin. But maybe there was other objectives there as well. The, the really scary thing about that is that once again, social engineering led to an account that had too much privilege, which allowed all this to happen. Uh, Twitter has been very closed mouth about it and releasing only boilerplate type statements. Uh, Thanks to Sniper for this story. Two Chinese hackers working for the Ministry of State of the People's Republic of China, the Ministry of State Security of People's Republic of China, were charged with a global computer intrusion uh, campaign targeting intellectual property, including COVID-19 research. Uh, there was an 11-count indictment against Li Xiaoyu and Dong Jiazhi, uh allegedly conducting a hacking campaign across at least 10 years that targeted the United States, pretty much everybody uh, that had high-tech industry, so from Sweden to, you know, to the UK, Germany, on and on and on. Uh, basically, they were grabbing whatever they could grab from what I could read in the story. Um, this is not something new. Uh, The Soviet Union, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and and China have for a long, long time conducted these sorts of operations. Even before the Internet, um, they they were out there trying to steal intellectual property. So that meant that if the the Chinese government put spies in the United States who were trying, I, I was trained on this back in like the 1980s, you know, when I, had a, when I had a clearance and they were telling us about how you might be approached by certain parties who would be trying to get you to give them blueprints, plans, schedules, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they've been doing this for a long time. And this seemed to be a state-sponsored version of it that was running on the Internet. So they were just breaking in and extracting it. There's also, though, apparently in the, uh, the claim, there was notation in there about extortion. Uh, they, were, they were telling people they would reveal things that they had developed. Uh, if they didn't pay up uh, for ransoms and so forth. So they may be financing their operation like that, the very common North Korean tactic. Uh, to do that sort of stuff. And COVID 19 development was also being targeted. My impression of that was that was just part of the overall plan to gather intellectual property. So if somebody's working on a virus vaccine, why not steal that too? You're stealing the plans for, you know, Chevrolet um, um, GM cars was a thing they used to steal, uh, tanks, airplanes, whatever. They steal the plans and then they produce it over there. Um, pretty typical. And I don't know that there was anything really dramatically new here, but it was it was another indictment of hackers. Uh, the original activity was discovered at the Department of Energy Hanford Site, which is one of, another one of those lab sites that, like where I used to work, that is located in Washington State. Uh, it's not clear that I don't think they arrested the two people. They just filed an indictment in Washington Court. Uh, for those individuals if they ever get their hands on them. So, you know, they probably should not come to DEFCON and that kind of thing. Um, The New York State Department of Financial Services has filed charges against a title insurance provider for exposing millions of customer documents that contain personal information. This is the first time that uh, this what is called Part 500, Title 23 in New York State Uh, was actually used. They passed this uh, legislation in March of 2017, but they had not actually charged anyone with it. First American, which is based in Nebraska, writes title insurance policies. And if you've ever bought a house or anything that required title insurance, you know that title insurance pretty much has everything about you down to your shoe size and the color of your toenail polish. So from October 2014 to May 2019, the charges claim First American's public-facing website would allow anyone to view customer information contained in that database. First American stated that only a small number of records was actually viewed uh, out of the hundreds of millions of records that were actually available in this database. Not sure how either side is going to prove how many records reviewed maybe they have evidence on that maybe they don't uh first american obviously saying not many reviewed the charges probably say a lot were viewed uh the penalty for this under this legislation can represent up to a thousand dollars per violation and there were roughly 753 million records so you know it could be a little pricey if uh, they manage to make these charges stick uh at the same time, another web leak uh, at Family Tree Maker, which is a product for doing genealogy. I, I knew about it because my dad used to use it when he, he used to work on genealogies and stuff. Um, but basically, uh, an elastic search server was exposed to the Internet. You know, we see that over and over again. Why so I included it here: the open and unencrypted server exposed 25 gigs of ancestry data and subscription data, which included all kinds of stuff uh, personally. So basically, if you have an outward-facing resource, you probably should secure it. I mean, you know, even if it's only internal, you should secure it. So when people put up these web servers and they don't secure things, you know, I mean, that's that's the way this works. Emotet, which has had a five-month hiatus, has resurfaced and sent 250,000 mal-spam messages worldwide uh, to Microsoft Office users, and that started last Friday. Emotet is an old uh, framework. It's been around since about 2014. Uh, It occasionally goes on vacation. Uh, and then resurfaces with new tools and new modeling. Basically, I was ranting about uh, all this stuff earlier, but Emotet is attached to a link and the email runs a PowerShell script, which downloads payloads from a command and control server. Pretty much the standard approach these days for all these frameworks, and again, somebody will click the link or open the attachment. Emotet has a framework capability that can be customized to download various different pieces of ransomware or other malware, which allows for compromise, exfiltration, ransomware, you name it. It's very typical of modern malware frameworks. Uh, This one apparently is dropping QuackBot instead of TrickBot and then QuackBot can be used to steal information from the local network, and of course, you can pretty much do whatever you want once you're in at that level, and you can have QuackBot drop ransomware as you go out. I always talk about people throwing a grenade over their shoulder when they go out the door, and that's kind of what I see a lot of this stuff doing. I go in, I steal a bunch of stuff, I don't want anybody to see that I was stealing stuff, so I just ransomware the whole place on my way out the door, and if hey, if I get paid for that too, why not? A number of VPN firms got called out this week, When COVID-19 first started sending people home, there was a run on VPN services driven by all the new work work from home users. Uh, Likewise, when that net neutrality bill was passed back in December of 2017, a lot of people started asking, you know, was the ISP going to start tracking them and deciding what priority they were, what they were doing, and so on and so forth. And the VPN is a big market. Uh, you know so there was a lot of marketing for different VPN services from free ones to pay ones and so on and so forth uh, all this has been emerging uh, about how the VPN would protect your information now remember VPN is only as good as the endpoints so your data is exposed on the front end before it goes into the VPN and it's exposed on the back end when it gets on the VPN host so when it exits the VPN tunnel it's still exposed so whatever you're doing can, is trackable there which is probably why you should build your own VPN like I said Well, UFO VPN makes a big deal in their advertising about not collecting user data or logging user activity, but the Hong Kong-based service recently exposed 20 million user logs, which apparently would indicate that they may actually indeed be logging what you're doing pure vpn was another one that claimed that it does not keep user logs they're adamant about that uh but they did then provide those logs to the fbi when it was requested it's pretty easy to write marketing statements saying i don't log anything we don't track you we don't do anything it's a lot harder to actually do those things especially if you're doing business in china or the endpoint is located in china and hong kong is in china uh, somebody asked me that the other day. They said, isn't Hong Kong separate from China? It was, but it's not anymore. And that China has recently cracked down on Hong Kong and, and trying to bring it closer to the behavior in the mainland China. So check your VPNs or roll your own, even better. A new attack called Meow has been running, So f- and so far 1,000 unsecured databases have been permanently deleted, leaving only the word Meow in its place. I don't know if this is from Super Troopers or what, uh, this was a first, uh, The first note of this attack came from this UFO VPN log release scandal, and it, it turned out that UFO VPN was also caught up in one of these meow attacks uh, and had dumped all this uncollected user information on the internet. Um, there, uh, there is no ransomware or anything else in the meow attack. It appears to be one of those really classic kind of hacking attacks, which I call the because I can. Uh, variety and years and years ago, I investigated one of these uh, with a company in the People's Republic of China. A very long time ago, it was called Forever Hack. Did something very similar to what Meow does, which it went through your web server or your database server and replaced something. In that case, it replaced all of them with a single file called ForeverHack. Hack. This one replaces everything with a with a file name that just includes the word Meow. So you know, <laughs> I mean. That's a pretty classic kind of hacked uh, sort of story. And finally, um, I, I was on the story a lot. I didn't get a lot of traction. It's just kind of a fun story to me. Uh, Bad Power is the name of a firmware attack that was demonstrated by Xuan Wu Labs, which is located at Tencent Games. Uh, they provided a video of the attack. I did put that in a wiki, and they released information that they were able to successfully attack the firmware of 18 out of 35 fast chargers. And cause a charger to deliver way more voltage, like two or three times more than it was supposed to. And that could be quite a bit of voltage. Some of those could go up to 12 or even 20 volts. And so, you know, suddenly blasting whatever is being charged with a lot more voltage than it was supposed to. It was already getting hit with more voltage than it was really designed for, right? Because it's on a fast charger. And then, like, tripling that could really get ugly. And in some of the cases that they included in their video, some of the devices melted bent, flexed, and or burst into flames. So uh, quite an interesting attack. The attack, though, not to, not to get everybody worried, the attack is very lab-oriented, and it wasn't something that could be done remotely. They were doing it by having access to the firmware charger. And that's the news wrap-up for the week of 19 July 2020. In the time of plague, I'm Doug White uh, from the RD online cybersecurity program at Roger Williams University. We'll see you next week on the network that never sleeps, Security Weekly, read the science.